the great ones of the earth, the intellectuals, the rich, the powerful, the nobility, the famous, they typically have not filled the pews of the church of Jesus Christ. They are successful in this world, and so they have little interest in the next world. They have little motivation to submit to the lordship of Christ and uh, potentially put everything that they have gained in life at risk. Now, the Apostle Paul concedes this point in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 26. He says, there, consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There, might, there were some. There were some who were wise and mighty and noble, but there were not many, and there have never been many. And he goes on in that same passage, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. So typically, the church has been made up of the people that are unfashionable, they are unhip, they're uncool, they are deplorables and bitter clingers, and it's not been the great ones of the earth who have made up the membership of the Christian church. And our passage before us is a case in point. The Apostle Paul will have an opportunity to appear before the governor in Judea, and the king, and his wife, and the tribunes, and the prominent people, they're all called in, in verse 23. Now, as he preaches to them, will they believe? Will they respond positively to his message? Spoiler alert, they will not, as we will see next week. But the encounter illustrates uh, the graciousness of the gospel, as well as the barriers to belief that are faced, in particular, by the great ones of the earth. Uh, before we go on, though, let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Acts. In chapter 21, the apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, chapters 22 and 23, he twice defended himself and his message. Chapter 24, he was moved uh, to Caesarea uh, because of the threat of his assassination, and he defended himself there a third time. Chapter 25, Festus replaced Felix as governor, and he uh, defended himself then a, a fourth time. He was asked by Festus if he would stand for trial back in Jerusalem, uh, traveling from Caesarea 55 miles as the bird flies, so the crow flies, um, to Jerusalem, which he refused and appealed to Caesar. Now, Festus, the governor, faces a problem. He doesn't understand the nature of the conflict between the religious authorities and the Apostle Paul, so he doesn't know with what to charge Paul if he sends him to Caesar's courts in Rome. Uh, so he says in verse uh, 27, it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. If there's no charges, why are we sending him to Rome and what are the Roman officials to do when he arrives and we have nothing of which to accuse him? At least as far as Rome is concerned. Uh, so this sets the stage, however, for 
the Apostle Paul's sermon before these great ones of the earth, his fifth defense of his gospel uh, before the authorities. And there's several lessons that uh, we want to observe on the basis of verses 13 through 27, uh, the, the lead-in to his uh, fifth defense. Uh, lesson number one is the gospel is for everyone. It is for all. So verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. It's a very providential visit. Agrippa, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, try to uh, understand who he is. This is the last of the Herodian kings. Uh, he's also known as Herod Agrippa I. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who killed the infants in Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. He is the grandson of Herod Antipas, who was called by Jesus a fox, who beheaded John the Baptist, and who, before whom Jesus briefly stood on trial. And he is son, the son of Herod Agrippa I, who executed James and who was about to execute Peter when an angel uh, uh, interrupted his intentions and struck him dead. He, he, Agrippa is viewed by Rome as an authority on Jewish questions. And he's, he's paying what you might call a, a courtesy visit. Uh, because as, as king, he is actually in authority underneath Festus. Uh, but Festus is, wants to hear from him because he, knows, he understands these religious things, that, uh, these conflicts between the authorities and Paul, which uh, Festus does not agree. And for Agrippa's point, he needs to stay in the good graces of the, of the Roman uh, authorities. Bernice is the sister of Drusella, hang with me here, um, and of Agrippa himself. So Agrippa, Drusella, and Bernice are uh, brothers and sisters, and the relationship between Agrippa and Bernice is incestuous. And as we saw last time, uh, Drusella uh, divorced uh, her husband in order uh, to marry uh, out, uh, against uh, outside of the, the laws of God uh, in, in marrying Festus. In other words, these are, these are very immoral, very corrupt, very degraded, and even violent people. And as such, I think they, they, they serve as appropriate examples of gospel grace today uh, because there's so much in common between the first century and the 21st century. Uh, the question that, that we might want to raise is, is this one. Given how, given how evil that they are, do they deserve an opportunity to hear the gospel? Which they're going to hear. Do they deserve that? Should they have that opportunity? Well, I think the answer would be no, they don't deserve the opportunity. But I think we had to add to that, uh, nor do we, any of us. They don't deserve the opportunity, and there isn't a single one of us uh, that deserves the opportunity to hear the gospel and to get saved. Like I say, the, the first century and the 21st century are very, very similar. In the 21st century, we have reopened Pandora's box, as it were, and released all manner of perversion. Uh, a host of evils have been normalized in our day. And so the question, again, that we might raise is, well, is, is the gospel for uh, you know, the, the, the evil people. It, 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 you know, what about those who have indulged in the various perversions that, that have been released in recent, uh, more recent decades? What about all these moral deviants? And what about those who, uh, who, who practice violence? 
Uh, what about the idolaters? What about the materialists and, uh, and other forms of idolatry? What, what about the hypocrites? What about the people who pretend to be godly, but their hearts are dark and full of jealousy and envy and covetousness and pride and arrogance and hatred? Well, what this passage reminds us, as, as God is divinely orchestrating events in such a way that the Apostle Paul will preach to these very people, what we're reminded of is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In other words, he's inviting all those who are wearied by sin and degradation, who are heavy laden by the burden of evil. Come unto me, he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So what this passage reminds us is that is that the gospel is for the worst of sinners. It's for the most twisted and the most the deviant of sinners that Christ came to save. And when the Apostle Paul says, even uh, identifies himself as the foremost of all sinners, that's exactly what he's saying. He's identifying himself as the worst of sinners. And so if, if, go if gospel grace was offered to the Apostle Paul, and he received that grace, and his soul was saved, and, and he became a servant of Christ. What, the, what his intention, uh, and, that, and what, what we should understand here this morning, is that the gospel of Christ is for all. It is for everyone. It is for the, the, mo the most moral and church-going and hypocritical of sinners, and, and it is for the darkest and the most degraded and the most deviant of sinners. So we're just reminded uh, by divine providence that, that the, the gospel is for everyone, including the great ones of the earth. Uh, so secondly, that this encounter with the great ones is by divine appointment. So if we can for a moment try to put ourselves in the place of the apostle Paul. Uh, think of all the good he might have done over the previous two years. What's he been doing in the last two years? He, he's been rotting in a jail, in effect. He's been imprisoned. He, he's been in bondage. Now, what could he have done during those two years? Well, he could have gone on uh, and uh, planted churches uh, in Italy and Spain, the way he had done in Asia Minor, uh, and the way that he had done in, in Macedonia and, and in Greece. He had been able to establish the churches all over that region. Well, he could have gone on to Italy and gone on to Spain. And then he could have gone on to North Africa and, and planted churches uh, uh, throughout Egypt and, and, and Northern Africa. Uh, think of all the good that he, that he might have done, and, and yet he wasn't able to do it. There he is, trapped in this prison, not able to serve God in the way that he would want to serve him. You know, raises the whole question, what is God doing and what, I'm, I, here, here I am, time is passing, I am getting older, the sands of time are slipping between my fingers, there's so much good that I might have done and I'm not able to do it. What is God doing? Why am I sitting here? I, I think we have to know the Apostle Paul was a asking himself those kinds of questions as the clock continues to tick and doors continue to close. What? are his purposes? Well, the answer is he does have his purposes. Let's just continue to read uh, verse, uh, for, in verses 14 through 19 he reviews what we 
uh, read last uh, time in, in chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and so it says in verse 14, and they stayed there uh, many days. Festus, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before King Agrippa, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, his predecessor. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews traveled from Jerusalem, and there they laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. You know, thank goodness for Roman law and the rights of the accused, which Festus is respecting. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And see, just in the, in the whole tone and the, the language that Festus is using in his description of things to Agrippa, it's plain to see that, that Festus is just a man of this world. He doesn't understand these religious things, and he doesn't want to make the effort to try to understand them. To him, it's all just, uh, it's just foolishness. This is just superstition. In fact, that's the way uh, the word uh, religion there is translated in the King James Version. Uh, these are just these religious questions. These are just these irrelevant things. Not, not, nothing of importance, just, 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 just religion. Uh, not, nothing, about, uh, nothing that's a threat to Roman power or Roman prestige and... It's not something about uh, wealth or, 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 or influence or, or anything that, that, that I would regard as important. No, it's, it's just about religion. And you know how religious people, they all, they all fight with each other. They all argue with each other. They all have their opinions. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's the way Festus uh, sees things. Uh, but uh, he then, in verses 20 and 21, reviews what we read last time in verses 9 through 12 of this chapter. So he says, being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, hiding his own twisted motives, by the way, that he's really just playing the political card, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had uh, appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Rome and to Caesar. So Paul refused a Jerusalem trial because he knew he wouldn't get justice there. He knew that there, were, there was a predetermined outcome for any trial there. And then amazingly, verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, uh, said he, you will hear him. August, uh, Agrippa uh, is interested. And so uh, we continue in verses uh, 23 and 24, um, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Interesting contrast between Paul, the prisoner of two years, and uh, no doubt the ragged condition that he was in and then all of the pomp and circumstance uh, of the authorities. And Festus said, King Agrippa, he's explaining once again, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem 
and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. I don't understand what the charges are. I don't understand what the offense is. I don't understand these religious issues is what Festus is saying. Therefore, I have brought him here before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa. Why especially before you? Because he was regarded as something of an expert in Jewish issues. Uh, the Apostle Paul says as much, if you look down at verse 3 in chapter 26, he says uh, to Agrippa, you are I'm glad to be tried by you because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Ah, so we have a judge who knows what he's doing. Uh, so that, uh, as, he, as Festus continues, uh, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. Reading again verse 27, For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So it's really quite exceptional. It's really quite extraordinary. The stage is set. The Apostle Paul has this divinely orchestrated opportunity, this divine appointment, as it were, to pre preach the gospel to the great ones of the earth. So I, you know, when we consider the providence of God, take the Apostle Paul during his two years. He doesn't know what God is doing. He, 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 there's no way that he could understand, apart from a divine revelation. He's just wasting away in, a, in, in some, some Roman dungeon. And, and all the opportunities to take the gospel all around the Mediterranean rim, those, those opportunities are all, all being lost. There's so much good that he could have done. Why is he being restricted like, like this? Why is God allowing that to happen? Well, right now, he's getting a bit of a window, isn't he, about what's going on. Uh, God has a prison ministry for the Apostle Paul. And it, 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 it wasn't long before the Apostle Paul be, began to understand that, but, it, but initially, just confusion. What is God doing? You know, Job, Job 26, verse 14 there, Job says that his, we see but the outskirts of his ways. He says, how small a whisper do we hear of him? There's so much that just typically, ordinarily, we don't understand. We don't understand the purpose. We don't understand the plan. We don't understand the circumstances. We can see such... Uh, such a better way, such, 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 uh, 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 it seems to us, uh, a more advantageous direction for things to go uh, than, than, they, than they currently are. And we wonder, why, why isn't God doing things differently? Why isn't he moving circumstances in, in this more positive way, this more desirable way? And, you know, if I were in charge, I would be ordering things differently. I would have a different plan. I, I would have a different goal in mind. I, I, I would be directing things uh, in, in a way that is, that is, that is uh, different from what, what God is, is doing. Well, the Apostle Paul, 
Uh, initially would not have understood, but now he understands. God wants him to preach to the great ones of the earth. He now has a great congregation of great ones. Uh, let's look further at the way the Apostle Paul comes to understand his circumstances. And let's be encouraged by this to understand that there always is a divinely ordered purpose that is wiser than our plans and promotes the good more than our, our, our purposes would. So this is, this is what he says to the Philippians. Perhaps at the very time, likely to be the very time of, uh, dur during this two-year period in which he was in jail. He says, uh, writing to the church at Philippi, he says, I, I want you to know, brethren, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison. He says, he's saying my imprisonment has, has resulted in advancing the gospel. It hasn't inhibited the gospel, it's not restricted the gospel, and it has not limited the gospel. Well, how is that, uh, how is that the case? Paul, tell us. Uh, Philippians 1.13, so that it, so that it i.e. the gospel, has, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So put Paul in prison and guard him with the emperor's guards, and what's going to happen? The, the emperor's guards are going to be converted, or at the very least, they're going to come to hear of the gospel message. That's what's going to happen, and that's indeed what, what did happen. Uh, so that he's, he's, he's able to say, the whole imperial guard has come to know the gospel message. And then he says, and to all the rest, and to all the rest. Well, who all, who all does that mean? Well, let's see. Verse then 22 of chapter 4 of Philippians, the apostle Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, now wait a minute. All right, so we're, he's, the apostle Paul, because of his imprisonment, he's infiltrated the, Ro the Roman military. The imperial guard, they're hearing the gospel. They're getting converted. I, I think of this with uh, Wang Yi in China, nine-year sentence. He's in prison. Do you think he's witnessing to the guards? Do you think the people who are his captors, do you think that they're hearing something of the gospel message? Unless they have uh, you know, bound his mouth, unless they've gagged him, of course they are. Do you think some of them are getting saved? Do you think some of them are getting converted? It's just hard to figure out. Here's this brilliant uh, Chinese uh, Christian minister, and, and he's in prison, nine years separated from his congregation, unable to travel around or even to pastor his own church. Why would God allow it? Well, who knows? Maybe the Chinese praetorians, maybe the imperial guard in China are getting converted through his ministry. So that's what the apostle Paul is able to say. So we have infiltrated uh, the military and we have infiltrated the palace itself. So we've, we've overcome the walls of the city. We've overcome and the walls of the palace. So that he's able to say back again to Philippians 4.22, all the saints, especially those of Caesar's household, there were converts among Caesar's own household, his own family, the, his, 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 his intimates, his advisors, those who were serving directly the emperor. So they had infiltrated both the military and the palace because of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment. Now, 197 AD, 
church father Tertullian is able to write, okay, so we're 140 years later after this, he writes, we were but of yesterday. Okay, there was a time, there were just a few of us, just a handful. We had a, what, you know, a small group at the foot of the cross. But we have filled all that belongs to you. He's writing to the emperor. We have filled all that belongs to you. The cities, the fortresses, eh, there's the military. The free towns, the very camps, there's the military again. The palace, the senate, the forum. See how far we have been able to penetrate? We're in the palace. We're, we're, we're in the halls of government. We're in the Senate. We're, we're in the, the city squares, the forum, where the exchange of ideas is, is, is taking place and people are rubbing shoulders with each other. We are everywhere. And then he says, we leave you to the temples only. All that good had come about. All that would have been unanticipated at the beginning of the two-year jail sentence. All that has gone on. That's not all. All the rest? What's that? All the rest? So the, the, the advance of the, the gospel has become known to the guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Yes, but among the all the rest are the other Christian ministers about whom he says in the next verse, many others having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's, here's another. The Apostle Paul multiplied himself. So he was one person, but he says, look at all these others. Uh, they were frightened, but they see uh, the, the, the benefit that's coming by this. They see the Lord's purposes. They see his protection. They see his care. And so they have been emboldened. And now, instead of it just being me, now there's this whole gang of preachers who are out there preaching the gospel, emboldened to do so, no longer timid, timid uh, no longer uh, restricting themselves, uh, no longer lacking the courage to go out and, and preach the gospel, but they've seen, I was willing to do it, and I was willing to be in prison, and so we're willing to do it too. If he's going to put his neck at risk, then we're going to put our necks at risk as well. All that because of the imprisonment. So this is, this is a divine appointment that, uh, that uh, is difficult for us to understand, difficult for us to uh, scrutinize until we come to this point and we realize all the good that's been done during the imprisonment and we come to understand it. Here is a grand opportunity. John Knox spent 19 months serving as a galley slave in a French warship in absolutely horrid conditions. Nineteen months. You know, he, he could have been preaching in Scotland. He could have been preaching in England. He could have been serving the church. He could have been spreading the gospel. He could have been spreading the Reformation message. Nineteen months just languishing and serving in, in these wretched conditions. Uh, one of my formative influences was Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Schaeffer went over to Switzerland in the 1940s and uh, I believe the hand of God was on that man, and he was seeing things and understanding things. He had a message, and it was burning inside of him. But he expressed with languish during the 1950s and into the early 1960s that his message needed to get out, and it wasn't getting out. And he was, he, he, it was determined that it should get out, but he didn't know how it ever would. And so the, that message just continued to fester within him. 
And in the providence of God, John Knox had his day. In the providence of God, Francis Schaeffer had his day. The day would come, but not according to their timing, but according to God's timing. And Knox for his generation and Schaeffer for his generation shaped a, a whole co cohort of believers uh, who, 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 who found their inspiration uh, to serve Christ uh, from, from his, their, their influence. God has his purposes. Often the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, his ways for us are inscrutable. His mind is unsearchable. We don't know what he's doing. He hides his paths. His footsteps are in the sea. You step into the water, the, the footstep disappears, doesn't it? We don't know where he's going. We don't know what he's doing. But he has his purposes. And, and our periods of, of suffering and our, 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 our periods of isolation and sadness. And then thirdly, the Apostle Paul finds a, a tough audience. Uh, what are the odds of success for the Apostle before these great ones? The odds, are, frankly, they're very low. Look, look at, back at verse 23. All the pomp and prominence. What's going on here? Uh, they're, not, they're not coming to the Apostle Paul uh, humbly, uh, spiritually interested, uh, hoping to... Uh, hoping to build a right relationship with God and to understand this. No, no, there's no spiritual motivation. This is idle curiosity. Their power, their wealth, and all these, these are barriers to belief. How so? Well, wealth is a barrier to belief. These are rich people. What wealth does is it, it, it masks our dependence and need of God. That's what it does. Uh, I, I spent a few days on a Texas ranch, the Bravo Ranch. You, you, can, you can Wikipedia it and find out about it. I was absolutely amazed at how much work it takes just to maintain the roads. Mother Nature encroaches all these dirt and roads. They have to be maintained. All the, just, just the roads and the fences. Enormous amount of work. Never mind dealing with the cattle. Never mind getting the product to market. Enormous energy of, of ranchers and farmers. Uh, what do we do? We go to the store and we pick up food. We, we are rich. Uh, so we get this little package of meat or a little carton of milk or some, some uh, fruit or grain product or something like that. Uh, the, 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 the dependence upon God is remote compared that it would be for ranchers and farmers. This is the problem of wealth. Everything comes easily. You don't understand your, your immediate dependence upon God because after all, what you need, you just go down the store and get it. Or today, you know, you just order it and it comes in a truck. It comes right to your door. I mean, it gets easier all the time, doesn't it? You know, you just send out a little message and then it appears at your door 24 hours later. You don't need God. That's the problem of wealth. You're self-sufficient. You're self-reliant. You have all that you need. You don't need, you don't need any divine assistance. What else is a barrier? Well, power. Powerful persons. Everybody bows before you and respects you and is awed to be in your presence. And to be a Christian, you, got, you have to humble yourself. You have to admit that you're a sinner. Jesus commends poverty of spirit. And, and, and the problem of power is, is pride. 
Jesus blesses the meek. The powerful are not meek. They have problems of, 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 of pride and, again, of the, same, the same problem of self-sufficiency. Then there's the problem for this group of pleasure. Agrippa and Bernice are unaccustomed to doing anything other than that which they want to do. Never mind the laws of God. They're no barrier to them. And so they want to have an incestuous relationship. They, they just do it. Pleasure for them is their ultimate God. So the Apostle Paul will speak of those whose God is their belly. Philippians 3.19. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.4. Uh, those uh, who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are very apt descriptions for the days in which we are living, where the average person, insofar as the average person believes in God, says, God wants what I want. After all, he wants me to be happy, so he wouldn't want to limit me in any way from what I want, what I desire. He wants me to be happy, so he must want what I want. And so we make a God out of, our, out of our pleasures and out of our desires. And when Jesus comes along and says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, we shrink back from that. That's just too much. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to limit myself. I don't want to restrict myself in, in, in any way. I have too much to lose, just like these great ones of the earth. Christian discipleship costs way too much. I have too much to lose. I have too much at stake in this world. And so the Apostle Paul will not be very successful the first go-round with this group. But there will be some, right? Not many, but some of the mighty and the noble and the great ones of the earth. Some of them will hear Jesus say, not only must you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, but he will then, they will then hear him say, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That sharpens the focus, does it not? All right, so what? What if you have all the pleasures of the world? What if you have all the power of the world? Oh, what, what if you have all that, uh, all that prestige? What, what, what if you have all that wealth? What does it profit if you gain the whole world of wealth and power and pleasure and you lose your own soul? What do you have? You have nothing. Life is short, eternity is long. You've given up eternity for the sake of a few moments in the light in this world. But there will be some, by that word of Jesus, some of the rich, some of the powerful, some of the pleasure-seeking will be persuaded and converted. There will be those in the imperial guard and Caesar's household. Why? Even when the prospects are dim, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And in 300 years, that gospel will overcome the Roman Empire, slaves and emperors alike. And so it is today. As we preach the gospel, the great ones of the earth and all lesser ones as well will come to repent and believe and surrender to the Lordship of Christ as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in this great gospel of the blessed God. And, O oh Lord, we pray, though there are not many mighty and noble and wise, we thank you that there are some and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill our 
pews with a multitude spanning the spectrum from the non-great and the great alike. In Jesus' name, amen.